keep eating. And now we'll uh, tell you a little bit about next week. And uh, further to my announcement about Shaw TV, they will be broadcasting the presentation every day at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and at 10 o'clock in the evening. So that's uh, really uh, awesome of them to do that, I think. <coughs> um, just to fill you in a little bit about next week, uh, we're talking about commemorating history, how and by whom are decisions made. And Belinda Croson from the uh, Lethbridge Historical, Historical Society will be here to tell you all about coming up. Um, uh, Tuesday, September the 20th, Olympics, the Olympics and elite athletes, uh, what are the, what are the uh, by having elite athletes perform at the Olympics for the larger part, they, uh, are they actually motivating people to get out there and do something with that? Uh, on Thursday the 22nd, we have Voicinos coming to speak about uh, Alberta's power grid. Uh, September the 27th, Tuesday evening at the library again. Medical assistance in dying law. Thursday the 29th, we have Harold Jansen to come and uh, tell us about place the first past the post system. We have uh, Nick Savadov from the college, and his topic is uh, aquaponic, aquaponic uh, food production. Are there a little bit of uh, something to look forward to? Almost ready for Lauren to come back up. Uh, I, I just want to tell you a little story. Uh, they bear my name, but they are not mine uh, by mistake. And by the time I spoke to them a few times, so don't feel bad about taking it with you. Anyway, uh name will be greatly appreciated, and they keep your, uh, keep your... Anyway, Lauren, welcome Lauren back up, please. Well, despite so, congratulations. So much, Lauren. Always enjoy your presentations because I learned so much from on the cows and fish program and how successful it is. That's celebrating its 25th year. It was built to help uh, is around lakes and wetlands and along streams and rivers manage that important in terms of ecosystem services like filtering and buffering water, uh, creating biodiversity. I would say, Francis, without uh, building up cows and fish too much, people who have wanted to change their practices for the health of the land. I want to ask, in connection with the Eastern Slopes land use, I understand you're actually and actively in discussion uh, paradoxes that arise from what may be planned? <clears throat> like on, particularly around the park, uh, park proposition for the castle, and especially of Porcupine Hills. And I might say that my, my wife Cheryl and I have been, have been to, uh, to be able to better interact with government planners, planners to understand the issues and to understand that it's print, to bring it back to some degree of ecological health. So I'm hoping- My name is Van Christou, 
thank you so much, Lauren, for one discussion on a, on, a, on a broad topic. Um, with the declining uh, number of fish in our streams, uh, I can imagine that there are fewer and fewer fishermen, uh, and perhaps fewer and fewer people being aware of the problem that's there. Uh, the uh, decline in fish is an indication of a dangerous thing that's happening to us. Um, we're and, uh, ignoring things like the decreasing fish, and uh, largely in part of our lack of looking after the eastern slope, mainly. Um, we all have a responsibility personally, but the corporations are of damage to the eastern slopes. And government, and they are, your view that um, we're, we're going to uh, continue to... Well, again, Van, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, the new government sees some of these issues, and I would agree just land use footprint um, with the associated row sheds. And sometimes it's hard, and I know this is going to sound harsh, but timber harvest, the Alberta Forest Service, almost seems like a solely owned entity happen, and they have to be profound is that people in the Forest Service and people with land use also have to have as one of their performance standards be maintained and one of the measures of that landscape integrity will be around this issue of, of agencies and organizations ignored to be. Thank you very much, Lauren. Larry Elford, what an easy to listen to and easy to view and understand presentation. Thank you. I wonder on that last question, uh, the regulatory review, the Alberta government going to include the people who uh, regulate and govern some of I don't know, but I'm hopeful that it will include those agencies. I, I think the Forest Service operates uh, in, or it provides direction to the timber industry, past uh, strictures about what can be done, but I'd, I'd like to draw your attention to made to walk the gangplank. And she turns back to the pirates and says, is that a guidelines? <laughs> and so I, I think we need to move beyond that sense of important strictures on how land use activities can be performed. Graham Greenlee is my name. Uh, OHV users are wooden bridges across streams. So that, that will keep all OHV. So what is your opinion about that? Well, first of all, Negative strategy to deal with some of the issues of erosion and sediment, numbers of crossings. Until we get to the point where we've got those built, the impacts will still be the same. While there's a lull in the questions, Travis is guilty of overfishing these creeks. Uh, is that why there's no fish? Having lunch, that the impression that I've given you, particularly with those uh, old black, wasn't it their fault? Well, there's no question that, that uh, over, but again, populations can bounce back from old fish habitat. That, that profoundly affects the ability of a fish river, and so are the fish. Okay, I have two questions. <clears throat> One is, um, when I was a kid, the mantra was, you know, we can just do whatever we want. That was the mantra. And um, change, and it seems to me it must be also related to human population death. What we're doing is poisoning our environment. Because I know for the during the locust, and that was, I think, during the 20s or 30s. So at what point did we actually realize? Answer that one first. Yeah. 
I don't think we've got there yet. Hilton <laughs> and mine as well about this expansive thing we called Alberta and the and the uh, Carly now. <laughs> My childhood was in California and we've experiments. Um, it, it seems to me that we, we need to convince the eastern slopes of the Rockies, but also um, water treatment plants in our Kenya is filled with all kinds of crap, even though it's gone through the water treatment plant. We still have hormone that cannot be filtered out by the water treatment plant, but can be filtered out by put more... Um, um, sort of a, a positive, he loved the riparian environment and talked about how important it was. It seems like it, we could we could get there faster with less problems with implementing it. Can you talk a little bit about sure. that and maybe explain what it is? Because you've used those terms and you also used OHPs, OHVs. Off-highway right. vehicles. Um, it goes back to the, the question that Francis asked me about the cows and fish program and, you know, on our mandate to create ecological literacy about watersheds, in particular the fundamental ecological importance of riparian areas to do a bunch of things for us. But, of course, it transcends just the ecological value of a healthy, vibrant riparian landscape to filter and buffer water, as an example. It's also about the economic value because filtering and buffering water, dealing with those issues at the headwaters or somewhere upstream of the water treatment plant means that we don't have to pay the cost of water treatment to the same degree when that water hits the intake. And so there is a pragmatic bit of economics at play to maintain healthy, vibrant landscapes, particularly that thin landscape called riparian, which is arguably about 2% of the landscape. Presentation and a great uh, kickoff to the fall. Uh, I'd like to put you on the spot a little bit. No, uh, no. Um, well, you can dip the doodle around, but uh, uh, you've been very tactful around the changes around your wording of uh, what needs to change in our treatment of the landscape. But if you had a representative of the government, uh, you know, at your feet, devotedly writing down every word, um, what would be the top five changes that you would legislate around? around better care of the eastern slopes, for example? Well, I think the first mantra I would chant is stop making things worse and try to make things better. I, and, and I think that that would, uh, that would move into what is the biggest land use footprint in the eastern slopes? That's logging. I think the second biggest land use footprint are roads and trails. And, and then it's the use of those roads and trails. And so I'm not going to go to five, Terry. I'll stick with those two. I think we need to start to think more appropriately about what we want our eastern slopes to be and to do for us. Are they merely a warehouse to be raided for resources? Or are they an integral part of our watershed in terms of the provision of high-quality water, high, a high quantity of water, of biodiversity, of rest and relaxation, and a variety of other ecological goods and services. We, we can't have it all. And so the first thing we have to do is start to start on that, that premise that what is the highest and best use of that landscape? And then what are the limits that we are going to set on the land use footprint? What are the, the thresholds that we are going to set for things like 
timber harvest and coal mining and oil and gas development and cattle grazing and OHV activity. And that has to be premised on the basis of what the ecosystem can support, not what we want to do within that landscape. And so those to me would be the primary things that we need to get a handle on is what, what's the use of the landscape and what are the thresholds that, that we are going to set on land use within that landscape. Though all of that is doable. In fact, uh, most of it already is well couched in the science and what it lacks is the will to proceed with it and the speed at which it needs to proceed while we still have something left to save. Hi, Lauren. Uh, thanks for your very sobering talk. Um, I'm Pat Greenlee, and it was my understanding that the new Castle Park protected the mountaintops, like the, the very rocky peaks, but the, the valley, the, the slopes and the valleys aren't really protected. Are they still working on that, or is it a work in progress, or...? Uh Patty, the, uh, the proposition to protect the, uh, the rocks was the old Castle Park under the old political regime. The new sense is that this is a landscape that includes everything from the mountaintops to the river valleys. And, and all of that is an integral unit part of a landscape unit that has to be protect, protected at a scale that's ecologically relevant. Yeah. Hi, Lauren. Thank you. Uh, I'm Ardell Harris, and I live in the Beaver Creek Valley, which makes sense to Lauren. I know it does. Uh, near one of the places that is currently being considered for protection as a park. But that's not what I want to tell you about. I want to ask, um, and I'm sorry if I'm cynical, but these days, it's money that talks. And it's money that says, oh, you can't do that. It's going to lower my um, standard of living, and so on. Is there any way, and I'm being very cross, that you can put a price tag on some of these things? Because that will hit home with a few people that won't budge for any other reason. Can you say what will we save in dollars and cents. Am I being unrealistic? Well, you, uh, when you say about being cynical, you, uh, you uh, speak to an ever-increasing crowd, including me. Yes, we can use economics to make those arguments. Are economics the only argument that we can use? No. And I think we have to look beyond economics for some of the answers because in a, in a strictly speaking dollars and cents investment prospectus, some of these propositions about park protection, for example, may not make sense if you consider, for example, a coal mine that has a 20-year operating lifespan. Now, what I'd like people to do, though, is to consider that a 20-year operating prospectus for a coal mine will produce a fair amount of economic activity. I'd also like to people to consider the prospectus behind 
the institution of some of our first national parks like Banff and Jasper that have been in place for over a hundred years. And think about what the economic value of having a protected area has been to Alberta, to Canada, and to the rest of the world over that longer span of time. And so I think one of the issues that we need to do is pick the right scale of time to think about when we mount these economic arguments. And also, economic arguments aren't the only ones to use. Okay, my name is Bobby Cullum. Um, we tend to explore the nature by horseback, but I have a lot of friends on Facebook who are the OHV users, and they get their backs up pretty quick, and I'm just wondering if you can explain um, practical tips for what, for foot, horseback, OHV, however we're exploring the great outdoors, what we can do. Just pretend we're all dumb here. Like, what can we do practically to keep things in the best condition? I would never pretend you're all dumb. Just do it. <laughs> that, that's a slippery slope to get on. One of the things I would have to say, and, and this comes from looking at how our population expands and what the demands are from an ever-expanding population on our natural areas. And this is irrespective of whether you hike or bike or horseback or quad or use a trail bike or whatever other mode you use. One of the things that we are going to have to come to grips with sooner than later, and we need to come to it sooner than later, is what the recreational carrying capacity of the landscapes are, irrespective of how we use those landscapes for recreation. Because even, even hiking with the populations that you see in some of the national parks can have a profound impact on landscape integrity. And so that to me is, is uh, the first step in understanding how to place recreation within a landscape so that we don't destroy the very attributes that we're there to enjoy. Um, when it comes down to the to variances between the various types, that's where I think we have to get into what are the various impacts. And I think we would all agree that if we looked at the spectrum from hiking to using a four-wheel drive, there's a fair degree of difference in intensity in terms of how those land use activities play out on the landscape. And in many cases, that upper end of intensity is going to be the one that we're going to have to curtail the fastest, in most areas, the soonest, because it has the biggest impact. I hope that, that helps. You know, th therein lies, I think, one of the dilemmas, particularly for people that enjoy quieter forms of recreation, the non-mechanized type of form of recreation in our forest reserves, is there's not many, many places for us. There are no designated hiking trails, for example, in the forest reserve, or, or if there are, they're minor. And, and so where do we go to enjoy the attributes that you talked about? And so I think that has to be part of recreational planning, is how we designate landscapes for a variety of recreational uses 
so that everyone can enjoy it, but that we don't impair it in the process. Uh, we have time for another question, uh, but in the meantime, I'll ask one. <coughs> Is there any uh, negative effects of wintertime recreation in those slopes, like snowmobiles, skiing, all those kind of things? Uh, do you see any uh, problems with those? Or can you? Well, There can be, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick on snowmobiles as an example, um, particularly uh, the use of very high elevation, high snowfall areas. Uh, those are often critical denning areas for grizzlies, and so there can be some impingement of grizzly bear habitat by snowmobile activity. And the other thing is, is that even the valley bottoms are still used by ungulates like moose and elk and they can be disturbed during the winter to the same degree that they can be in the summer by other mechanized equipment. So it becomes a function of, instead of everybody having access to everywhere, where are the most appropriate places for these activities to occur that aren't going to cause the, the impairment of some natural feature or some wildlife species? Hi, it's Francis Schultz back again, and uh, you've just spoken to what I was going to bring up, and that is the issue that somehow or another, nowadays, everyone thinks it's their right to experience everything, and one of the things that reminds me of that is the fact that now that the ice is melting in the Northwest Passage, it's okay for cruise ships to go up there, and one really wonders about what kind of impact that has in the long run. But I think trying to control the off-road highway vehicles and those kind of things that perhaps do a lot more damage than the hiker does, that we know do more damage, is it because we want to be able to do whatever we want with no limits? And how do you control that? I'm a biologist, not a social scientist. <laughs> and and uh, I, I think you've raised a fundamentally important question, Francis. And, and I think the, the, the answer to it lies in we have to acknowledge that there's too many of us on too small a landscape. And that something has to give, and just like many national parks now have instituted capacity uh, limits. Uh, my wife and I just got back from hiking in Mount Robson Provincial Park west of Jasper. There are strict limits on the number of people that can use the backcountry and, and frankly it works because then the people that do get the backcountry permits have the opportunity to experience it as it should be experienced. Does that mean that everybody, that, that the many people get cut out of the opportunity? Yes it does but it also means that backcountry will be sustained for a long time span with that lower capacity. We got time for one quick question to wind things up. Thank you, Lauren, for the wonderful presentation. Totally appreciate an uh, eye-opener for our natural environment here. Uh, I have a slightly off-the-wall question because so far uh, we've been concentrating our near environment and things we can do. Uh, maybe this question is something also we can do, but it's not that close to us. Um, 
Regarding the environmental impact, we can see SUVs. We can see the gas stoves we have in our house. But what do you think in comparison to, let's say, industrial disaster? Somewhere, big scale, such as Fukushima, or maybe a bomb drop out of Afghanistan, or maybe a nuclear test somewhere in the world. That kind of scale, do you think maybe we can put some more effort into curtailing those kind of impact will be better uh, in comparison to the little uh, in footprint we have in front of daily life? So I'd like to he uh, hear a comment. Thank you very much. Thank you for that optimistic view of what could happen. <laughs> I, I, you, you raise a good point as well, though. I, I mean, it's, it's what we can do locally. It's what we can do regionally. It's what we can do on a watershed scale that is fundamentally important. But when it comes back to native trout, climate change, the warming of our climate, the warming of water temperatures is a severe threat to native fish populations. And I, I think most of us would agree with climate scientists who say that climate change is something that's happening because of us. It may not be a, a nuclear uh, fallout uh, from from Japan, it may not be a bomb somewhere else, but nevertheless, it, it's an impact that's happening. And so we have to be aware that we, even though we may not fish, as an example, may have an impact on native trout simply because of the, the fossil fuels that we use to drive here and to, to make our lifestyles more, more, uh, more uh, comfortable. So Therein lies the other end of the spectrum in terms of where our responsibilities lie. Thank you very much. Great talk.